0: Well, good morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. It's good to have you here again on Facebook and on YouTube as we gather in our homes and in our various corners of the city and the county for worship together. We are excited to have you join us. We're gonna be continuing with our new series, Encountering God. Today is part two, and I'm excited about the story that we're gonna visit today because it's a story that we don't hear about a whole lot in church, but I think it has a lot to share about how we encounter God and how it is that we can find God at work in surprising and even in painful areas of our lives. So I hope that you are ready to join with me. Please settle in, relax. Uh, Grab your Bible, grab your communion elements if you haven't already, because as always, we'll be sharing communion together again today. And before we jump into the text, I just want to ask that you would pray with me for just a moment. God, we thank you again for today and for this opportunity for us to gather as a church, no matter where we might be here in Oceanside or throughout uh, North San Diego County. Uh, or even outside the state for those congregants who I know are in Alaska and in Utah and Georgia and New York and in other places around California scattered into the Northern California area, the Bay Area and Central California coast. All of those folks who are finding a home here at Oceanside Sanctuary, whether they are close or far I ask that this morning we would be joined together in spirit that you would give us a sense that you are leading all of us in exciting new opportunities to grow in our relationship with you and to grow in our relationship with each other and to make an impact on the communities that we find ourselves in. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I wanna invite you to open up your Bible again to the book of Genesis. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to go ahead and open that now, uh, take a look at it. We're gonna be looking at Genesis chapter 21 today. If you don't have your Bible, as always, we're gonna put the passage up on the screen, so no worries there. But the passage we're gonna be looking at is part of a very familiar story. That is the story of Abraham And Sarah and the story of Isaac and their family. But we're going to be looking at some characters in that story that don't always get as much attention or as much credit, frankly, for their lives of faith. And that is the story of Hagar and Ishmael and how they intersect with God's story around Abraham and Sarah. Because, of course, the reality is is that even though Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish faith and then, by extension, the father of Christianity and the Christian faith as well, that the truth is God is at work in the lives of every person in this story. And God is particularly at work in the lives of Hagar and Ishmael. And I think this particular story really helps us to see some important things about our faith in our life today. Chapter 21 is where we're going to pick this up. Chapter 21, verse 8, to be specific. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open there. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to read through this whole story. Uh, I'm reading through the Hebrew Bible, translated by Hebrew scholar Robert Alter. So the language in my Bible today will be probably a little little bit different than yours. That's okay. Just follow along. The meaning is the same but sometimes the words or the phrases are a little bit different. So just don't get tripped up by that. If you'd rather just listen, that's fine too. I'm just going to read the whole text aloud all the way through, and then show you a couple of things that I am noticing in this text. Starting in verse eight says this, and the child grew and was weaned. Now this is picking up eight verses into chapter 21. So the child That is being referred to here is Isaac, the son that was promised to Abraham and Sarah for so many years that they waited for so long to come along. And so we're picking up in the middle of this story. So again, it says the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the day. Isaac was weaned and Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham laughing And she said to Abraham, drive out this slave girl and her son, for the slave girl's son shall not inherit with my son, with Isaac. And the thing seemed evil in Abraham's eyes because of his son. And God said to Abraham, let it not seem evil in your eyes on account of the lad and on account of your slave girl. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her voice. For through Isaac shall your seed be acclaimed. But the slave girl's son too, I will make a nation, for he is your seed. And Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, placing them on her shoulder. And he gave her the child and sent her away. And she went wandering through the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, She flung the child under one of the bushes and went off and sat down at a distance, a bow shot away. For she thought, let me not see when the child dies. And she sat at a distance and raised her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad and God's messenger called out from the heavens and said to her, what troubles you Hagar. Fear not, for God has heard the lad's voice where he is. Rise up, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for a great nation will I make him. And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave to the lad to drink. And God was with the lad and he grew up and dwelled in the wilderness and he became a seasoned bowman. And he dwelled in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him, a wife from the land of Egypt. Now, this is one of those stories that I think can be really tough sometimes for us to read and really tough for us to hear, because there are really all kinds of really complicated things going on in this text. It's not the most flattering text for Abraham, who's a father of the faith, and it's not a very flattering text for his wife, Sarah, who is a mother of our faith. And frankly, it's sometimes not a very flattering text for God, who doesn't seem to demonstrate the kind of care and concern that we would want a good and just God to demonstrate for somebody like Hagar or her son. And that's kind of the point of this text, I think. I think sometimes we approach the Bible and we expect all of it to be sort of clean and sanitized and putting forth that everything is good and everything is wonderful and every single way that we view God and perceive God and every single way that people of God, people of faith act is good. But that's really just not the case. The, The text and scripture in general are more complicated than that. They're more nuanced and more layered than that. And I think that's a good thing because our lives are more complicated than that. Our lives are more layered and nuanced than that. And what we see in this text is that Hagar is this Egyptian woman who actually is Sarah's slave. So to back up a little bit on the story, Sarah actually has a slave girl from Egypt that she calls Hagar. And so Hagar then in this story is really sort of the oppressed and subjugated one. And we often tend to think of Abraham and Sarah as people who are struggling under a great weight, a great difficulty, uh, because they're wandering around, they're trying to follow the call of God, and they're suffering under this really terrible wound of not being able to have their own children. And that's true. Sarah suffers from being barren. And so Sarah is herself a person who's dealing with suffering, a person who's dealing with a sense of unfairness about life. But in this story, we get to see that Sarah is also, in her own way, unfair to this slave girl that she calls Hagar. Now, if we dig a little deeper, we remember that Sarah has some other difficulties, some other oppression in her life. If we reach back a little further, if we go back a couple chapters in the Bible, we, we remember that when Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt, that Abraham pulls this sort of weird, funny movies. He's in Egypt, and he's afraid of the Pharaoh, and he's afraid of what the Pharaoh might do and what the Pharaoh might think if Pharaoh discovers that Sarah's his wife. So Abraham basically says that Sarah, his wife, is actually his sister because he doesn't want Pharaoh to get jealous. And then that backfires because Pharaoh ends up taking Sarah for one of his own concubines. And so in this way, Abraham basically throws Sarah under the bus because he's afraid for his own life. He's afraid Pharaoh's going to kill him in order to take Sarah. And in saving his own skin, Abraham really sells his own wife into a kind of sex slavery to Pharaoh, where Sarah becomes a concubine to the most powerful ruler, the most powerful tyrant in the land. There's this really great old Hebrew madrash that draws upon this tradition that once Pharaoh realized that Sarah was actually not Abraham's Uh, sister that sarah was actually abraham's wife we read in the text that that pharaoh is fearful that that he thinks that abraham's going to bring a curse on him and so he you know gives sarah back to abraham and he kicks them out of egypt tells them to leave and go away but what the old hebrew madrash says is that there's this old tradition that in order to compensate sarah for the wrong that was done to her by both abraham and pharaoh that Pharaoh actually gave Hagar to Sarah as a slave and that Hagar is actually Pharaoh's daughter. And so what we have here is a very complicated relationship. We have a situation where a woman, Sarah, has really been victimized and hurt and abused by her own husband. She's been victimized and hurt and taken advantage of by a powerful ruler. And then because of that, that victimization, because of that harm that was done, that ruler Pharaoh tries to pay her back by giving her this slave girl, Hagar. And so then Hagar becomes the slave girl that in many respects, it seems like Sarah takes her bitterness and her frustration out on. And of course, in the background of this story, in the background of all of this complexity of two women who are both being oppressed and abused and taken advantage of, the background of this story are these two men, Pharaoh and Abraham, who because of their power and because of their privilege are able to take what they want or to get what they want at the expense of these women in their lives. And so this is a really complicated story of intersecting realities of suffering intersecting realities of oppression. And what happens right at the beginning of this is we see that bitterness in Sarah and that fearfulness in Sarah leaking out in response to, to the behavior of Hagar's son. So go back with me to the text uh, again, uh, Genesis chapter 21, and look with me again at verse 8. Second half of verse 8 says this, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abram laughing. And she said to Abram, drive out this slave girl and her son. And there's a really interesting thing happening in the text here, because of course, what happened between Sarah and Abraham and Hagar is that Sarah gave this slave girl, Hagar, to Abraham to have a son because Sarah was barren. And so they did. Abraham took this slave girl to be his own concubine and she became pregnant and she bore him a son. And that son's name is Ishmael, although we don't see the name Ishmael appear anywhere in this text. And that's one of the interesting things about this text. Ishmael, who would have been a teenager by this time, appears to be doing what teenage boys often do. He is mocking or making fun of his little brother Isaac. And the text says very specifically, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. In other words, she saw Ishmael, whom had been born to Abraham, laughing. And this made Sarah mad. Now, we could read this text and think, Well, why would she be angry that this teenage boy is laughing? But I think it's important to remember that Isaac's name, Isaac, literally means laughter or he laughs. That comes from the previous few chapters where there's this whole story about Abraham and Sarah having a child well into their old age and how they laugh at God because they think it's ridiculous. And then God has sort of a, the last laugh by saying to them, you will have a son and you'll name him Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter or he laughed. And so the writer of this passage here in Genesis chapter one is actually playing upon this word. He's playing upon the reality that Isaac's name means laughter, and Ishmael is laughing at him. Uh, the ancient Hebrew scholar Robert Alter, who wrote this particular translation of the Hebrew Bible, he says that essentially what Ishmael's doing is he's Isaacing Isaac, right? He's mimicking or mocking him by laughing at him and thereby making fun of Isaac's name. And so we see then that there's something underneath this obvious text, that there's a kind of deep family rivalry going on here. And one thing that's kind of fun about that in this text is that names turn out to be really, really important in this story. You could say the whole story really kind of hangs on the names of these characters and so uh, like i said isaac's name literally means laughter uh, and hagar's name literally means foreigner or alien and so hagar's name isn't even actually her given name hagar is the name sarah gives to her to constantly refer to her as a stranger or a foreigner or an alien And this reflects Sarah's attitude towards Hagar. We see it again right there in verse 9 when she says to Abraham, drive out this slave girl and her son. When Sarah says that, she doesn't even use Hagar's uh, nickname, foreigner. She refuses to use Hagar's name entirely and refuses to use the name of Hagar's son, Ishmael. And so names play a really key part in revealing sort of the subtext of this text, the story behind the story of what's going on here. But what we see by further digging in to the names and how names are used in this passage is that God comes along and uses his own sort of twists on language, his own play on words to reveal that God has a plan for all the characters in this story, including Hagar and Ishmael. So let's go back again and pick up the story where God says to Abraham, verse 12, God said to Abraham, let it not seem evil in your eyes on account of the lad or on account of your slave girl. Whatever Sarah says, listen to her for through Isaac, your seed shall be acclaimed. In other words, listen, Abraham, I want you not to worry about this because I have a plan for Hagar and Ishmael. It's what he says in the very next part of that sentence. But this slave girl's son too, I will make a nation for he is your seed. In other words, Abraham, I know that this is hard. I know that this is difficult, but I will make sure that Ishmael is blessed and that Hagar is blessed as well. So let's take a look at a little bit more of this story and see how God's promise to take care of these characters unfolds. So look with me at uh, verse 14. And Abraham rose early in the morning and he took a, a bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar and placed them on her shoulder. And he gave her the child and sent her away. And she went wandering through the wilderness of Beersheba. You can imagine the heartbreak Of all of those three people involved, Abraham sending away his firstborn son, Hagar taking water and bread and wandering out into the wilderness, and the son, Ishmael, maybe 15, 16 years old, being separated from the only family he's ever known, as they go out and they wander in the wilderness. And there's this incredibly heartbreaking scene where this woman who has been so abused And so subjugated and so oppressed, Hagar wanders around in the wilderness until her water is gone and she's convinced that her son is going to die. And so it says she flings her son under a bush and then travels a much greater distance away. It says the length of a bow shot away. So it must be, you know, a hundred yards or so. She goes away at a longer distance so that she won't have to hear the sounds of her own son dying. And then we pick up in verse 17, a really interesting turn of phrase. It says, And she sat at a distance, and she raised her voice, and she wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and God's messenger called out from the heavens and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Now, that's one of those situations where, you know, God asks a question that seems to have an obvious answer. But that's really not the focus of this particular part of the story. What's really interesting about the text in the original language here is that when it says in verse 17, God the heard the voice of the lad, that the word that's used that we translate as lad or boy in that particular sentence is a different word than the one that was used earlier in this story to refer to the child. You see, earlier in the story up to this point, If you remember, Ishmael's name has never been used. He's simply been referred to as a child or as a boy. And in every one of those instances, the ancient Semitic word that's used is a word that basically just means one who is conceived. In other words, it's the most impersonal generic uh, word that you can possibly use to refer to a child. It's, It's utterly lacking any kind of relational connection. And so, of course, it makes sense that Sarah would use this very impersonal word to refer to Ishmael, this child that she's fearful of because she wants to protect her own birthright. But here in verse 17, that word referred to Ishmael changes. The word that the writer uses to to call upon the son of Hagar and the son of Abraham switches to a new word, and that is a word that means Boy, or means lad, or means young man. It's not just that it means somebody who's older. It's not the difference between a baby and a teenager. It's the difference between, say, boy and son. In other words, it's a term of endearment, it's a term of tenderness, it's a term of compassion and relationship. And so what we have happening here in this passage is that Hagar is crying and weeping and 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 wailing because of the impending death of her son. And what we discover is that the writer tells us that she's not the only one who's crying. It tells us that Ishmael is crying too. And that God hears the cries of Ishmael and responds by referring to Ishmael in the same kind of language that you would refer to your own son. And so something has shifted in this story a new relationship has been birthed, a new connection has been revealed, a connection that exists not just between God and Isaac, not just between God and Sarah or God and Abraham, but a connection that exists between God and Hagar and a connection that exists between God and Ishmael, this bastard son that has been relegated to the sidelines of this family and has ultimately been outcast and tossed into the wilderness to die. This very same boy, this very same child God cares deeply for and wants good things for. And that's what we see in the rest of this passage. God says to Hagar, fear not, for God has heard the lad's voice where he is. And that really is the center of this story. Because even though Ishmael's name has never actually been used in this story, what we know is that Ishmael's name in Hebrew means he who hears or God hears. And so Ishmael's name literally is. The moral of this story. Ishmael's name literally is the central point that the writer in this particular chapter 21 of Genesis has to make. And that point is very simply that whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your pedigree might be, however it is that you have been mistreated or outcast or abused, God hears your cry. And God hears the cry of Ishmael and God hears the cry of Hagar And responds in verse 18 with these powerful words, Rise up, lift up the lad, hold him by the hand, for a great nation will I make him. And that, my friends, is the encounter that Hagar and Ishmael have with God. Their lives have been utterly relegated to the dust heap of their tribe's story They are people utterly without a family or a pedigree. They're literally wandering around in the wilderness, but they have everything they need because no matter what abuse they've suffered in the past, no matter how they have been mistreated or falsely named or accused, they have God as the one who will hear their cries and respond and provide for them. And that is what happens when we encounter God as well. We find that in the midst of our difficulties, our trials, and our sufferings, that when we reach that, for that place when things seem to be at their worst, when we reach that place where we are at rock bottom, that when we cry out, God promises to hear us and respond. This is a theme that we're beginning to uncover in this series already, that when we reach our point of greatest frustration, our point of greatest desperation, that that's when God comes to our rescue. Now, I want to ask, before we wrap it up today, just three questions for you that I'd like you to wrestle with today and this upcoming week. The first question is, how is God revealing the intersections of hurt in your life? One of the things we saw in this passage is that uh, all of the hurt and the abuse in this story is complex. That A lot of it intersects with each other, that in some cases, a person who is doing the hurting is somebody who has also been hurt or abused in the past. And that's often true of us. There isn't uh, always a clear victim and a clear abuser. Sometimes we are victims of abuse, and that abuse leads us to go on to become abusers ourselves. This is why what we call sin in the Christian tradition can be so deeply ingrained and difficult to deal with because it has complex intersections in our hearts. So my first question is, how is God beginning to reveal your hurt and your wounds uh, and your abuse to you? How is God healing those hurt and those wounds and those abuses in your own life? And how is maybe God revealing the ways that out of your own woundedness, you have at times hurt or wounded others. My second question is, how has God changed your name? We talked about how names really are a central feature of this story, that through these names, we discover that there are uh, old hurts and old wounds. Like I said, we discover that there are old visions and promises that people are holding on to. And we discover that people's names are sometimes taken from them in order to deny them of their identity and their birthright. And in other cases, new names are given to them to demonstrate God's care and concern for them. And I've noticed that that is a common theme, that oftentimes when we have an encounter with God, God gives us a fresh identity. God gives us, in a sense, a new name. And so that's my second question. What name has God given to you? I don't mean like literally, you know, how has God changed your name? But what new sense of yourself has God given to you because of your encounters with God in your life? Or if you haven't had that experience, if you haven't had the experience of feeling as though God has given you a new sense of yourself or a new identity, then my question really is, what new name would you like to have? What new name are you praying for? What new sense of self and identity are you longing for? And maybe that becomes your cry or your prayer to God today. My third question, my last question is, how has God heard you and provided for you? We learned today about how God responded to the cries of Hagar and God responded to the cries of Ishmael, fulfilling Ishmael's name that God hears So my question is, how has God heard you when you have cried out to God? When you have reached that point of desperation or rock bottom, uh, how do you recall God has spoken to you in ways that express his tenderness towards you, that has spoken to you in ways that have revealed how the Spirit is leading you into new opportunities, uh, new places of safety and security, or new places of calling and vocation in your life? All of these areas that I'm talking about are areas where we experience a kind of radical encounter with God. It's the sort of thing that if we're open to it, we experience over and over and over again in our lives. If you would like to, I want to encourage you to share some of your responses to these questions in the comments on Facebook or on YouTube, and then take some time to encourage each other, say hello to each other, and affirm each other in your faith story and your faith journey. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to go with us this week as we continue to try to learn how to follow God's leading in our lives. Would you just pray with me? God, we thank you again for today and for this opportunity for us to gather online and connect, and uh, open up your your Scripture and allow it to stretch us and challenge us, and nourish us and refresh us. We thank you for the ways that your Word uh, meets us even in complex realities. And we ask that you would teach us how to be nourished by it more and more every time we gather. We pray all this in Jesus' name.